community-centric fundraising, I feel like came onto the fundraising scene over the last couple years. But the reality is there's been years and years of work around, you know, back in the day it was grassroots fundraising. Kim Klein was a huge thought leader in that space. And then over the last few years, there's been a lot more formalized thought and process around what it means to do community-centric fundraising. And so if you're curious or you want to practice community-centric fundraising or just learn a little bit more about what it is, this podcast today is for you. And I'm going to be clear, my bias is that I think it's a really important movement that we all need to be paying attention to. And so we're going to dive into that conversation I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and you're listening to the Small Nonprofit Podcast, where we bring you practical, down-to-earth advice on how to get more done for your small organization. You are going to change the world, and we're here to help. So today, my guest is Maria Rio, and I mean, I've known Maria for a few years now, and I was so, so delighted to see that she's become more involved in the community-centric fundraising community. I'm going to call her a thought leader because she has published on this and been featured for her work in this area. But Maria comes to nonprofit work in such a like, lovely way. She was a refugee to Canada at an early age, and that really sparked her passion for the sector, and then spent over 10 years in fundraising and communications. She knows what she's doing. And over the last couple of years, not only has she been thinking about community-centric fundraising, she's been practicing it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Maria, welcome. Hi, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure. And before we talk about what is community-centric fundraising, I'd love for you, if you remember like how you first learned about this, what your recollection is of like discovering CCF. Yeah, definitely. I feel like for a lot of the fundraisers who use CCF, they feel it in their heart. They feel something is amiss. I can't put my finger on it because I've been taught all these fundraising norms as best practices. So it's a little difficult to kind of put your finger on it. But when I started reading actually uh, Vu's blog, Nonprofit AF, I was really coming to an understanding. This is what I believe. This is what I think. This is exactly, you're putting it into words. And then when community-centric fundraising started as a movement a few years ago with their website, that was also a really interesting place to get involved, start learning a little bit more, see what other people were thinking about it because it was so new and so different at the time. It was things that people had been thinking for a long time, but it Community-centric fundraising is a little bit different because it feels like you're reinventing the wheel every time that you try something. It's like, Mm. is that community-centric? Can you do Mm -hmm. that in a unique, nice environment? I don't know. So it's just (laughs) very interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about what is, for those people who've heard of it, I mean, there's certainly been, from what I follow, a lot of people sort of polarizing community-centric fundraising as an opposition to other sort of core principles. And I do think that it is changing the way we think of fundraising, but really like my understanding is sort of a set of principles that are allowing us to revisit fundraising from a values perspective. So tell me how you would describe CCF to someone who's never heard of it. 
Yeah. Um, so CCF is a fundraising model that is grounded in equity and social justice. It's about prioritizing the whole community over individual organizations, over individual EDs, our egos, and really fostering a sense of belonging and interdependence. So prioritizing the collective mission instead of a piece here and a piece there. So really working in partnership with our donors, our volunteers, our staff, our boards, and other nonprofits and nonprofit leaders. To me specifically, it's about reimagining how we engage our communities. So whether that's our service users, our volunteers, our donors, to make everyone feel really valued and invested in the work. Mm -hmm. I do understand sometimes it's seen as controversial and I get why, but I don't necessarily see it as extremely different from donor-centric fundraising. It's more about like if you treat your donors as partners already, you won't have a really huge difficulty with community-centric fundraising. But if you treat them as transactional supporters, as ATMs, like you write me a check, I name this after you, then it'll be a harder time adopting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like in my experience, broad-based fundraising where you do cherish all donations and really, you know, recognize those annual donors who are what I call the lifeblood of your organization. Usually those people are your community. They represent the community. Like they are the same. And I think that they can happen, as you said, in major, like if you look at relational fundraising at the major gifts level, then you can have that balance. You can be partners But I think our sector has created, and I've had conversations like actually, I think with Rakesh Lakhani on the podcast before, if you haven't listened to that episode, where we've actually put on to a pedestal these donors and then created this deep power imbalance. Then we center fundraising around those donors. That's problematic. But Mm -hmm. you can have major gift donors. You can have broad-based donors. You can get money from companies. I think what I love about what you described is that partnership sense that we're all playing a key role in social justice and that we're all at the table as equals. So does that sound fair? Yeah, definitely. And something that I really liked about community-centric fundraising is that I actually feel like my donors are partners. It's not Mm -hmm. something that I'm just saying. It's something that I feel to be true. So I've had conversations about donors, about, you know, capitalism, wealth hoarding, tax avoidance, all these things. And they don't turn around and they're like, no, get away from me. You know, they're saying like, I've already been thinking about this. And oh my God, I used all these tools to avoid taxes. And I didn't even know that was problematic. Mm -hmm. So that to me has been really interesting because I feel more aligned with my donors and I feel like they understand why we're doing is important. So in my case right now, I'm working at the Stop Community Food Center. We provide emergency food access to communities. So obviously we're subsidizing poor government supports, but we're not going to stop feeding people because the government's not going to step in right away, obviously. So having those conversations with donors about how we're enabling inequality, they're enabling inequality by doing all these other things like tax avoidance, anything like that. Like we're contributing to the problems that we want to solve. Mm -hmm. And those may be hard conversations to start with, but once you get the hang of it, it's really deep, nice conversations. It's kind of when you start legacy giving, you're like, oh, I don't know how to talk about that. That's kind of scary. And then once you learn how to do it, it's like, wow, this is like an amazing conversation. And they really understand why you believe in this and 
why you want to get involved in this way. I love that. And I mean, there are set of principles. I don't want to go into all of them because I think where most people get stuck is like, you can find that on the website where people I think get overwhelmed are like, yeah, that's a cool idea, but is like, how do I actually do it? <laughs> so let's talk about, cause you are doing this like all levels of the, I hate the donor pyramid. I shouldn't even reference it, but like really, if you're a fundraiser, you know, and you're, so you're working on this with all types of donors, let's say, instead of ugly pyramid. So let's talk a little bit about like what you're doing, how you're practicing this. Let's start with that. I call broad base, like those annual supporters who are, as I said before, the lifeblood of your organization. Yeah. So I think we've made a lot of changes to our fundraising portfolios and how we steward our donors who give money, but also how we steward people who don't give money, but donate their time uh, and show support in various other ways. I think the four key differences that we've applied over the past year and a half as a team, as an organization has been how we steward major donors. That has been a really big one. Um, revisiting donor-centric events as well. The pandemic gave us a really good opportunity to do that, which is not something that you hear often, but in our case, yeah. it's true. Our role in public policy work, and then how we prioritize the collective mission, because we know nonprofits are very siloed. It's very difficult to build those connections. It's such a scarcity mindset that we have. So those are the four biggest changes that we worked on. And I can definitely dive into them if you'd like yeah, to know more. <laughs> I would. Let's talk about that. We're just going to go in order. So tell me about major gift stewardship and some of the changes you've made there. Sure. So we've done a lot with our major donors. We have a lot of really interesting, deep conversations as we were talking about a little bit before about power dynamics, wealth hoarding, naming rights, the problems with restricted giving, the problems with DAVs, like really interesting, deep conversations. And some of my donors, they're literally like five years ahead of where some of our fundraising organizations are, which is so interesting. Oh, some yeah. of them will turn around and be like, you know, I was offered a tour of the stop a few years ago while the risk program participants there. And I felt really uncomfortable because mm -hmm. people who are experiencing poverty, like don't probably want to be gawked at while they're eating lunch. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, absolutely not. You are totally right. So the donors have already been thinking about this. So having those conversations is a really easy first step. I've also been sharing really other sources of CCF material. So look at this blog or for a donor who I felt you totally get it. You are my soulmate donor. Mm -hmm. I asked her to write a blog post. So she wrote a blog post from her perspective about the power dynamics a DAF creates. Yeah. How, you know, you shouldn't be accumulating wealth, all these things that we were then able to share onto our website. That's amazing. Just having her perspective is so helpful because you are a donor. It's kind of like peer to peer. So it's really awesome support. How do you start those conversations? Like, I'm assuming you're not like saying like, hey, you, we need to have a conversation. So how does it come up? And how do you sort of move towards that? Yeah. So for me, it actually comes really naturally. I think it really fits super well with the work that the stop does. So it's just really engaging them in conversations around, okay, well, we can fundraise, we can provide food to people, but that's not going to help them retire. That's not going to help them go on vacation. That's not going to help them fight against Toronto's affordability crisis and move out of the basement that they're living with their family. And that's what I want to do. Do you agree? Yes. Perfect. <laughs> We're on the same page. And why 
aren't people having that access, right? So we can talk about social assistance rates and housing affordability and systemic problems, right? So once you start getting to systemic problems with your conversation, it becomes a lot easier. So Mm. I would say trigger word to see if a donor is going to react poorly to what I'm saying will be white supremacy. So if they don't react at all, I know that they're a little bit further in their learning. So I can continue having the conversation about racism, capitalism, exploitation, privilege, all those things. But if they have a reaction, then I know, okay, got to start smaller, like pronouns, discrimination, those kind of things. So those have been really interesting conversations, but I never feel like I have to prep the donor. This is part of my work. This is part of my beliefs. And I'm looking for people who want to support that mission. That's awesome. Now, I know people are going to be thinking, I've experienced where a donor has said something like you, you know, I love that, that you have your trigger word because yeah, like I've experienced donors saying something where my heart sank and I was like, oh my God, you did not just say that. Are we going back 20 years? Like, oof. So how do you handle donors who just really don't get it. Like they're not even just not ready for the conversation. Like fundamentally they're on a different page. Maybe they're in a different book. Yeah. So there's two ways that I handle it and I encourage my team to handle it because I want them to feel empowered to make those decisions on the spot as well. So the first one is, is this person willing to learn? Is this person willing to have a conversation? It is absolutely emotionally draining and very difficult to try to teach people about your own lived experience or about, you know, why capitalism is bad. It's a long process. So if they're not willing to engage with you and really listen and read and do the research and really think through, because it's such a personal journey, Mm -hmm. right? I can't prescribe it to someone and know that they'll grow. It's you have to put in the work if you want to. So if they're willing to put in that work, I'm more than happy to kind of pause the conversation and be like, oh, actually, you know, people aren't poor because of themselves. They're poor because there's a lot of systemic barriers, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. If they're not willing to learn and they're not willing to have a conversation like that, or they say something that's like really, you know, past the line, then I just encourage the fundraiser to end the relationship. Mm-hmm. Like that's not the right partner for the organization, even if maybe they were before you started implementing CCF. But for example, we had a company reached out to us and they said, we can provide free space for your community members to come and garden and do the programming. Awesome. Great. So we started talking to this company and they were saying, oh, well, your community members had to look like this and they can't be dirty and they can't have addiction and they can't, you know, look a certain way. Exactly. So it's just like, okay, you're not understanding (laughs) what people who we deal with are going through and you're really thinking about the image of what you're doing, which I'm not here to charity wash your brand. So we ended that relationship and we even stopped accepting donated food from that company. Mm. Okay. So I know I've been in challenging conversations with donors and now as a business owner, like with clients where I'm just like, okay, I know it's not right. I'm not going to pursue it. And sometimes I just like ghost them and I'm so embarrassed to admit it <laughs> because I'm just like, I, I mean, to your point before there's, I don't want 
to shoulder the work of trying to educate someone or just like, I'm protecting myself by saying like, this isn't a fit. I'm going to walk away, but I don't even owe them an explanation. But then sometimes I feel really like I'm not doing my values any service by, you know, not taking that opportunity to say something. So I actually really struggle with this. Uh, yeah. and I feel very conflicted. I'm curious if you also feel that way or if you have experience in either scenario. Yeah. Honestly, like as a fundraiser, you are opening yourself up to a lot of relationships, a lot of different people. Sometimes it comes with the territory, but, you know, we already experienced so much trauma working in nonprofit, why put yourself through more? Especially if what they said is like, especially egregious, like you don't have to deal with that conversation and you don't have to put yourself in like harm's way. Like if someone's being harmful to you or to like people you love, you don't have to keep engaging that person. Like yeah. it's on them to learn. It's a personal yeah. journey. You can't cure, you know, whatever this person is going through in their mind. Yeah. Okay. That makes me feel a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> Post them. Bye. Yeah. Okay. We could literally have a podcast episode on each four areas, but I want to keep moving. Let's talk about events because that's also super interesting. So what have you done with this gift of not having events for a couple of years, being able to redefine them? Yeah. So that was pretty scary because we were making a quarter of our revenue from events. So Everybody was freaking out about this. Whoa. Yes, yes. What were your events? Tell us like... Yeah, so we had uh, a few signature events. So one of them was a gala ticket starting at 375. And then I think our cheapest ticket was for a night market. So basically you come, there's a lot of chefs preparing food, little stations. And that one I think was 175 or 125 per ticket. Whoa. Yeah, so... With events, when I was looking through all the strategies and all the portfolios that we could be taking, I'm looking at all the numbers, you know, fundraisers, that's how we are. Only 20% of the people who were coming to our events were then making a donation at this crisis COVID time, which mm, was a little bit yep. surprising to me because obviously either we're not engaging people well enough at the events, which I don't know if we were or weren't because I wasn't here then, but one year that night market got blown away by the wind and a lot of people, a lot of people asked for a refund because they didn't realize it was a charity thing. Yeah. Right. So just creating events for what we think donors want at the cost of including our service users and our community members. Right. Yeah. So the way that I explained it to my board was look, a hundred dollar ticket when I was experiencing food insecurity, that's a month worth of groceries Mm. like that's not something that i would ever spend on a ticket and then even if the ticket was donated like by some generous company and i got to be you know the charity case at events (laughs) yes like i can't afford to buy a dress to do my hair to fit in in a way that wouldn't make me feel uncomfortable or even like i remember when i was food insecure the person i was dating at the time he took me out for my birthday for a 60 dollars steak and i was like $60 steak. This is like half my month's groceries. And it made me feel so deeply uncomfortable. Mm. So I don't know. It's just like those kind of designed events for like your service users, community members wouldn't feel comfortable. Just leave a bad taste in my mouth personally. Yeah. And when I was talking to some of my major donors around that, some of them would say, yeah, you know, it felt really weird. It felt 
one percentery was what one donor said mm. to eat this like really fancy meal in front of a chef who's cooking it for you for a cause that does food security work. Yeah. So that was really, really interesting. And we've heard comments like that from some donors, but we've also heard when are you bringing back events, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Thankfully for the revenue side, we've been able to make it up with individual donors, foundations, some foundations like doubled their gift and their support through COVID. So for two years yeah. in a row, which has been such a huge help. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah, we really focus on building non-transactional relationships with people and the event sponsors that were really big supporters and aligned with that non-transactional approach have already moved over and we're still getting their donations. They're doing, you know, matching gifts for Giving Tuesday or they're watching an online urban agriculture session and donating like $8,000, something like that. So it's just been a really interesting experience to transition so many people but also to know you're not going to get all of them because some yeah. of them didn't have a connection. Exactly. I was just going to say, not only are you being more aligned with your mission and values as an organization, but these are, dare I say, better quality donors, right? Like, I don't know if we, I feel uncomfortable, you know, giving that title of quality to donors, but these are the donors who are going to stick with your organization through ups and downs and thick and thin. And when you need something, they're going to be there. Like, as opposed to when your night market blows down from a storm and they ask for their money back. So yeah, that's a really great, great takeaway. Yeah, definitely people who you can, you know, become partners with, which is like my whole thought behind this and not just see like once a year for an event like that's not a partnership i can't count on you being there for my organization yeah and i can't throw an event every single time that i need someone to be there for our organization like you really yeah. need to believe in the work believe in the cause know what we do know that you're at a charity event yeah all those good things i love that and i love that you know that a quarter of your revenue was tied to events and you've been able to recoup that through other methods it's like such a testament to this works um, yeah. recoup and then some, yeah. which has been really great. It yeah. definitely shows this is not an approach that we have to take. Yeah. Let's talk about policy. And then, yeah, I still want, I want to make sure we have time to touch on everything. So tell me about the policy work because especially in Canada, like advocacy is a little bit of a scary word, even though the rules have changed over the years around advocacy. There's still this like very big fear of like, oh my goodness, we're going to lose our charitable status if we engage in advocacy. So what do you do? It even though we can do a little bit more. What does that look like from a CCF perspective for you? Sure. So we've been trying a lot of different things, and I have no experience in policy, so this by no means has been perfect. It's been a really long learning journey. And now we're at the stage where it's like, okay, we have enough information to put together a multi-year strategy. But the last two years has been a little bit of winging it. So bear with me with that. So one of the first things that we did was we did a survey of around 200 community member service users on their top public policy priorities, because I can imagine what your policy priorities are, but everybody has different lived experience. So why not just find out for sure? So we gave them 20 priorities and they gave us our top three. So increased social assistance rates, affordable housing, and free or OHIP paid dental care. Yeah, very important topics. Mm -hmm. And based on that, we sought out partners that made sense to partner with on these topics. So 
We developed a partnership with the Ontario Living Wage Network and with the Neighborhood Land Trust as well to do policy around those topics. So affordable housing and living wages, so increasing social assistance rates. And we did a campaign around the federal campaign and the upcoming municipal campaign. So really getting involved publicly in these conversations. I definitely know charities feel worried to talk about political things, but everything that we talk about is political, right? Mm -hmm. People not having access to food is a policy choice. It's not because we don't have enough food. It's because we see some people as expendable and I don't think that's okay. So being able to talk about political stuff, I think should be really encouraged. And I know there's some rules around like Elections Canada and when an issue becomes partisan versus not partisan. Usually, as long as you stay away from, I support this party. <laughs> this candidate, yeah. Yeah, this, this candidate is our favorite, then you're okay. What we've been able to do is actually engage local representatives to come and speak to our community members about their top priorities. So we did something called Pizza with the Politicians, where we had MPP candidates come and speak to our community members about affordable housing and increased social assistance rates. And we just invite all the candidates, right? Yeah. So they get the opportunity to come if they'd like to. Some of them don't show up because they don't, you know, see our Care. community members <laughs> as their top priority. But the ones that do show up, that really speaks volumes. Yeah. Let's talk about the collective mission and the, I mean, tell me about that because that sounds really big. <laughs> and so what is that fourth pillar and what do you do with it? Yeah. So this one, I feel like we've done really well at, but also terribly at, because it's so hard to do these things off the side of your desk. Right. But I don't have a communicate with other nonprofits person on my team. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just been really different and interesting to kind of build these relationships and partnerships. So I personally been really meeting with a lot of CCF aligned fundraisers, and that has been hugely helpful Mm. for myself. Because you don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time. And you might be able to ask people, like, how did you deal with this problem? Or maybe this is a new environment for me. And CCF applies in a different manner now. Because CCF applies very differently for my organization than it would for a private school, for example. Right? It's, It's a different community. So that has been huge for me. As an organization, something that we did is using those top public policy priorities that I mentioned before. We approached two donors and we said, hey, would you consider this crazy shared platform idea? You will give us $25,000 each. And then our community members decide where half of that will go. Ooh, Yeah, it was really interesting. And I think being able to solidify those gifts like really speaks to the level of trust that our donors have in us and our intentions and our methods. So that was really amazing. So we had $25,000 that was selected to go to the neighborhood land trust. And that's how we actually started building that relationship. And they do a lot of really amazing public policy work and they've had motions get pushed forward. So especially with housing being such a complicated topic, they've Mm -hmm. been an incredible resource. We've tapped them a few times to be like, Oh, okay, vacancy control is that that's a provincial issue. What can the city do about that? And just really understand these topics in a more deeper way. So yeah, the reimagining partnerships, we've done that. We've also had um 
I don't know if it was monthly, but around monthly conversations with FoodShare to talk about how they're implementing each principle of community-centric fundraising and how we're doing it. So, hey, you're really good at this and we suck at that. Or, hey, we're really good at this and you could work on it, right? So that has been really interesting as well. And just being able to Skillshare, share resources. We've also been sharing our voting guides and some communication pieces with smaller organizations that may not have the time because everybody's doing everything off the side of their desk. <laughs> so yeah, I think there's a really big opportunity there for us to do more. Yeah. But it is hard doing it off the side of your desk. 100%. Yeah. 100%. And I think you touched on like, this is still a relatively new, I'm going to call it community of practice, right? And so the benefit is that you get to learn from each other and create community and and all of that. But also, you know, organizations aren't necessarily like there's very few organizations who are really invested in making this a priority. Also, you got to think of all the egos involved too, because it <laughs> kind of becomes like a little minefield sometimes. Like yeah. that person claims to, you know, believe in equity community X, Y, and Z. But when it comes down to it, like how much work are they willing to put into this collective mm. movement, not yeah. just their organization? Yeah. And I mean, we all also struggle with our own baggage and stuff. And so while I say this very aware of my own privilege and whiteness and everything is like, we're going to mess up, right? There's going to be moments where it's not going to go well. <laughs> like, I'm going to say, say something or do something that might not be aligned with my values or the values of something like CCF. And it's like, you know, I mean, that's a whole other conversation because we certainly don't have time to dive into all of that. But I think, you know, the amazing thing is like everyone, anyone can show up and start doing the work. But that also means it's going to be minefields. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be people who say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or cause harm in some way. And it's like, you know, those are conversations I know I'm actively involved with as like a white person, which is like, how do we continue to do the work and learn and grow and not cause harm? So, but in that learning, harm seems a little inevitable. So yeah, it's a journey. And I, again, like, while some of these thoughts are not brand new, we're certainly, there's more structure, there's more thought leadership, there's more activity than I've ever seen in my 20 plus years of paying attention to this. So, and proof of concept. Yeah. I have heard people, specifically old white men in our sector, their challenge to CCF work is that. And they will say this, I don't believe this, but this is what they say. Like there's no, there isn't a body of knowledge and testing that something like, and then they'll say donor-centered fundraising has, which again, I don't think they're in opposition. I think we agree on that. But I mean, even that statement fails to recognize the white supremacy and power of the environment that created that body of knowledge and work. And like what I love about what you're doing and you're seeing growth, like this is the time that we're testing. There's, it's not to say that it's not effective. It's just that we have to create the space to do the testing. If you're scared to do any testing as a fundraiser, get out of the field, you know, like it's AB testing everything, first of all, but then second, like, yeah, you're ignoring all the reasons why donor centric fundraising 
exclusively works, right? Like, yes, keeping people in power, in power, keeping wealthy people, wealthy, keeping white people in power of organizations sounds X, Y, and Z. So those are things that old white men have the privilege to ignore. And that's wonderful. But for a lot of us, we're not in the situation. It's just very frustrating how slow nonprofit is to move. Yes. And that's because there's power, right? There's power in the way things have been done. It serves people, some people, and change is hard for people. So I think we don't have time to talk about the dynamics of being a fundraiser in a social justice focused organization and the pressure to simultaneously deliver on the mission and also be a fundraiser and have those financial goals. But I'd love for you to talk about your experience, if you're comfortable diving into this new space that you know aligns with your values and your organization's values, but also like I've worked in social justice organizations where no one wanted to talk to me because I was a fundraiser. So I don't know if you want to go into too many details about your experience, but what's that been like? That's okay. I feel like in this organization and the previous one that I worked in, there's just such a big focus on the organization being aligned to social justice, right? So for me, that's such a big part of like my personal belief and my personality and my lived experience that when something doesn't go exactly how I think it should go when it comes to social justice, like people have different opinions and they're allowed to have them, but it just, it is disheartening, right? Mm -hmm. Like why did that, you know, board member do this or that, you know, person posts out on social media or whatever it is, right? It just leaves you a little bit disappointed because you're just like really looking for that change at every single Mm -hmm. step of the way. Thankfully at my current organization, the staff is like so understanding of the issues, almost to the point where it gets a little, (laughs) uh, a little, like you are always on guard. Like, am I doing the right thing? Which is good. Like, it's really good to be able to hold each other accountable to the things that you think and the things that you believe and the things that you preach. So it's difficult working so closely to something that you care so much about, but it's also really rewarding. I love that. Maria, thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for doing this work and sharing that experience with us. I'm such a huge fan. Where can our listeners connect with you and learn more about what you're up to? Sure. Connect with me on LinkedIn. My name is Maria Rio, R-I-O, like the place. Really always happy to chat with people about community-centric fundraising. It's something that I'm really passionate about. And don't feel like you have to reinvent the wheel alone. We've been through it. So, you know, if I haven't done it, I can connect you to someone who has. So it's just really worth a conversation. Amazing. And like, I can attest to that because I've connected people to you and you've been so wonderful in connecting with them. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving space to this conversation and for everything that you do, Cynthia. You're the best. Oh, and of course, thank you to our listeners. We'll see you next week. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.